may be seated. I wish you a good morning. Welcome again. And also welcome to Holy Cross. Uh, you have in the, the uh, material you received this morning in your bulletin, you have a, uh, a sheet, a study sheet. And if you would like to use that to uh, help you along with the sermon, you may make notes there. And uh, if that works for you, then, then please do so. Uh, when, when it comes to deciding which uh, passage of scripture to preach on, sometimes it, it takes a little bit of thought and thinking about how they relate to each other and so forth. This week's was a no-brainer. It was an absolute no-brainer. I mean, you've got chariots of fire, right? Horses of fire. You've, you've got the heavenly host. You've got, you've got all this going on and, and uh, taking Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind. Uh, Perhaps, perhaps even angels. There are some uh, depictions of it that, uh, that even include angels. We don't know uh, about that for certain. But, but one thing we know for certain is this, that, that it was not, not fear that overcame Elisha when he saw his old mentor disappearing into the clouds, but rather it was grief and sorrow. For he cries out as he sees him go away, my father, my father. And the text says he saw him no more. At some point, it occurs to Elisha that now he has a problem, how to get back across the Jordan. He asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and Elijah said, that's a hard thing. I'll ask, but he couldn't guarantee him anything. He gave him a sign, as it were. So Elisha takes his old mentor's mantle, which I love this picture because you see it flying down. Elijah doesn't need it any longer. He's, he's clothed with immortality. But there is Elisha waiting to receive the mantle, the cloak, that is a sign of his authority. And he takes his old mentor's mantle and he strikes the water. And he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And much, I'm sure, to his relief, the waters part. And Elisha goes back to Jericho. And thus he succeeds Elijah. And we'll say more about that a little bit later. We're not told why God chose to take Elijah home in such a manner without him having to die. But it, it seems, and there's no need in speculating on that, but it, it seems a little bit to me that maybe this is God's way of letting us know that Elijah's work on earth is not quite over. And we'll see more about that later as well. To this day, crossing the Jordan is a metaphor for death, and it has been for thousands of years. It's a very good one at that. Uh, some of you, uh, my fellow dinosaurs here, uh, will recall a folk song that used to get sung at camps and around campfires, Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore. How many of you remember singing that around? Oh, you, we all sang that at campfires and so forth. It's actually an old spiritual. I, didn't, I did not realize that until I did a little research on it, but it kind of morphed into a folk song. And uh, one of the verses says, River Jordan is deep and wide. Hallelujah. Meet my mother on the other side. Hallelujah, my favorite. River Jordan is chilly and cold. Remember it? Hallelujah. Chills the body, but not the soul. Hallelujah. Great song. Well, about 550 years before Elisha's adventure, the Jordan was parted when the children of Israel, that second generation of those whom Moses led out of Egypt, came to the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua. But how were they to get safely across? Well, God instructed them, as, as you see in our slide, to have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, that visible manifestation of God as their Savior, into the river. And there the rivers parted, the waters parted it, so that the entire nation could pass by on dry ground. 
Now, to commemorate this event, there were two memorials that Joshua told them to set up, one in the River Jordan and the other one at Gilgal. And where did our story this morning start? With Elijah and Elisha in Gilgal. That was their first stop in the Promised Land. And the memorial was very simple, as you can see it illustrated here. It, it was just 12 stones, 12 rather large stones, each one representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the symbolism is unmistakable, is it not? They go into the Jordan, the place of death, as symbolized by that one set of stones that was left in the riverbed, left underwater in the place of death. But they emerge on the other side as the people of God. And so Joshua tells them, I'm reading from Joshua chapter 4, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried it up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now sadly, for much of Israel's history, God's people did not live up to the calling. Of, of, of what Elijah or of what Joshua just said. And that's where the prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the Old Testament prophets come in, calling the people to repentance. Repentance implies you once were somewhere and now you're not there anymore and you need to get back. That's what the idea of repentance is. So it is God telling us you need to be what you really are. You need to be who you are and what you are, not be something different than what you are. Let's fast forward past Elijah and Elisha. Let's go to the, to the last of those Old Testament prophets, Malachi. Some, we have to fast forward about to, around the year 400 B.C. And these are God's final words to Israel. The last words of the Old Testament. Listen. Behold, I, God is speaking. God says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then what? Silence. 400 long years of silence. No more prophets. No word from God. But then suddenly, out of the wilderness, there comes one who becomes known as John the Baptist whose father, an elderly priest named Zechariah, is serving the Lord in the temple one day, and he's met by an angel of the Lord. And what's usually the first thing out of the angel's mouth when people encounter them? What's the first thing the angel usually says? Fear not. <laughs> Fear not. These are no little chubby cherub angels like you see on the greeting cards, are they? No, 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 no. No, these are the soldiers of God, the messengers of God. And they obviously, just their very sight is something that leaves their, uh, the, the receiver of those messages uh, right, quite, quite afraid. So he tells him, fear not, but this is what the message is. He, the, the son that is about to be born to Elijah, or to Elijah, to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, he says he will be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That from Luke chapter 1. And so we see that God isn't quite done with Elijah yet, is he? John's message can be summed up in one word. And that word is very simple. Repent. 
And what was the sign of their repentance? The sign of their repentance was baptism in, of all places, the River Jordan. Well, what's the significance of that? Simply this. Baptism was a, a ceremonial ritual that was performed not on the Jews. No, not at all. They'd already been baptized when they went through the Jordan. But no, it's performed on Gentiles, non-Jews who wished to convert to Judaism. Among the many things they had to go through, one was to be baptized. It's symbolic of having their ceremonial uncleanness washed away, the filth of the Gentile way of life and so forth, washed away. And so they were immersed, completely immersed, going down into the waters of death, as it were, but raised to walk in a new life as God's covenant people. So what is John saying to these Jews by telling them, you need to repent, and a sign of your repentance is to be baptized right here in the River Jordan. What is he saying to these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's saying simply this. You're not living, you're not acting like God's children. You're living like pagans. You've forgotten what these stones mean. God has rescued you from death and given you new life. So you need to repent and start being who you are. And then something very strange happens. Among those waiting in line to be baptized is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. And John sees him, and he is understandably hesitant to do so. And even tells him, Lord, I, you, you need to baptize me. I don't need to baptize you. Because he is the sinless son of God. But he does it anyway. And thus the sinless one identifies with sinners. And indeed, in a few short years, he will die the sinner's death. He will die with sinners as a sinner and die for sinners. And just then, the Trinity shows up. God the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father's voice booms out from above saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And what's the very next thing that happens? Where does Jesus go immediately from this? The Spirit leads him where? The wilderness. Where he meets the enemy. And thus the battle begins. And Satan... Our ancient foe, as Luther calls him, says the same thing to us that he said to Jesus. And what was his opening shot to Jesus? Are you really the Son of God? Well, the Father just said he was, didn't he? And what is Satan's tactic? It's worked since the beginning, since the garden. Lies. Lies. So he calls that into question. Are you really the Son of God? And Satan, our ancient foe, will say the same to us. You call yourself a child of God? Seriously? Have you said that to yourself? So what do you say to that? Well, maybe some of you are thinking, oh, the enemy never hassles me. Satan hassling me? Nah. It's all medieval kind of nonsense, right? I'm sorry to hear that if you think that. Maybe it means that you're not on his radar. Maybe it means that, you know, you're no threat to him, so he just leaves you alone. Or... Maybe he's doing just that, and you don't know that it's him. Satan comes in all kinds of masquerades, doesn't he? Thomas Merton uh, was a Trappist monk and a prolific writer, and he once wrote of, and I quote, the private demons that hang like vampires on the soul. It's kind of a creepy image in your mind, isn't it? But that's, that's what they are. They will absolutely suck the life out of us. Not surprisingly, Martin Luther was very much 
on the enemy's radar as a leader of the Reformation. And he struggled with all kinds of anxiety and depression. I, I don't know what they would have done to him these days. I mean, he, he, was, he was a mess from, from many, many places in his life. But he was, so, what, so what do you do? Well, you do what Jesus did there in the wilderness when confronted with the enemy's lies. You speak the truth. You speak God's word. That's how Jesus answered him, wasn't it? And here's some, just some examples, and, and scriptures are just full of, I don't mean in some superstitious way you just start reading the Bible. No, but for example, one of my favorites, Jesus came to his own, John chapter 1. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. My right to call myself a child of God doesn't come from me. It's the right that the Heavenly Father has given me. Because I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And one that's part of our subject this morning, just one more, from Romans chapter 6. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Martin Luther practiced this, this very same thing. He said this, there is on earth no greater comfort than baptism. That may seem a little strange at first to hear that. No greater comfort than baptism. And he demonstrated this in his life in this very practical way. He admitted very freely that whenever he was in distress and anxiety, that he comforted himself by repeating this to himself. I am baptized. I am baptized. I am a baptized man. Why? Because that's our truest identity. If you understand baptism, that is your truest identity. You were buried with Christ. The old you died. And the life that you now live is resurrection life. It's supernatural life. That's the new birth. Thus, you and I can say to the enemy, or you can say this to yourself if you're your own worst enemy, and most of us are at some time in our life, right? We can say this, though, in either case. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because I am buried with him in baptism and raised in his resurrection, I am God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. I am God's daughter in whom he is well pleased. You and I can say that as well. Not because of us, but because of what Jesus did for us. Now, take a minute and just let that sink in. Near the end of Jesus' life, he takes Peter and James and John to a high mountain, and two other folks show up, Moses and who? Elijah. Indeed. And we will take a look at that. We celebrate next Sunday, Transfiguration Day. That's the transfiguration of Jesus. We read in Luke's account, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Interesting word, departure. It's the Greek word, exodus. Jesus later said to his 12, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Oh yeah, he had John's baptism, but he says, I've got another baptism, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, Jesus freely and deliberately faced the waters, not just the John's baptism, but rather the chilly and cold waters of death itself 
and he crossed through them. Why? So that you and I can follow him across on dry ground. And where are we headed? To a land, a promised land, a place that we haven't seen yet, but a place that Hebrews 11 calls our homeland, a better country. Now that's good news. That is the good news of the gospel. That's why we call the Christian message good news. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. Now, I, this morning I've made much of the idea of our baptism being the source of our new identity in Christ. We are baptized the same way we come into this world, one at a time. But we are also baptized into a community, a people called the church, the body of Christ. Baptism is the gateway into the church. That's why that font is where it is, there at the door. As a reminder to ourselves of that, that you and I are baptized people. Last Sunday's epistle reading from Ephesians 2 speaks to this. Paul tells us, you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows. You usually think of structures as growing, do you? You might add on to your house or something, but he says the whole structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now we know that as believers, the Spirit of God is the one who drew us to Christ. We are born of the Spirit, as Jesus told Nicodemus, water and spirit. We, we know that's true of us as individuals, but you know that it's also true of us as a church? That we as a church, as a body, become the actual dwelling place of God. We are the body of Christ. And then this morning we read in Ephesians 4, and he, God, gave these gifted people, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds or pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints. To do what? For the work of ministry. Ministry is everyone's job. Not just guys that wear the uniform here, is it? No, it's everyone's job, and many of you know that. But it's good to remind ourselves, for the work of ministry, and what will that do? For building up the body of Christ. How long? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is one of those difficult run-on sentences that Paul is so fond of, that we may no longer be children. Little, little kids. That's, we expect little children to act like little children, but Paul says, we don't need to be little children, tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Back to Elijah for a minute. He is eventually acknowledged as Elijah's successor, but not right away. Those 50 sons of the prophets, those apprentice prophets, as it were, organized a search party. Did we miss Elijah? Are you, you sure he didn't just take a little ride in that chariot? And maybe he's out there on a mountain somewhere, abandoned, 
Elijah says, Elijah says, don't do it. But they did it anyway. And they asked the question, where is Elijah? But Elisha knew that that was the wrong question. The real question was the one that he asked when he was stuck on the wrong side of the Jordan with only Elijah's mantle. What does he say as he strikes the river Jordan? Where is Elijah? No. He says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? That's a good question for us today. As individuals and as a church, where indeed is the God of Elijah and Elijah? Where is the God of Moses and Peter and James and John? Where's the God of Martin Luther? Where's the God of Thomas Merton? Where's the God of Foley? Where's the God of Frank? Where's the God of Henry? Where is he? Same place as always. Same place he's always been on his throne, next to his beloved son, with whom he is well pleased, and still is, as he told St. Peter, building his church as he's always been. Nothing changes, not in that sense. And what's his desire for you and I at Holy Cross? What's his desire for us? We just read it. Grow up. Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together with which, uh, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it fills itself up in love. And I take growth here to mean numerically as well as in strength. Because I don't really think you can have one without the other. Love is the defining mark. Building itself up in love is the defining mark of all that you and I do as individuals and together as the body of Christ. And if our love is genuine, if our love is real, guess what? Sometimes it's going to be tough love. Love isn't always telling people what they want to hear. Or what you think they want to hear. And we see that particularly in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. They were his red-headed stepchild. <laughs> the Corinthians were a mess. And I, for one, am kind of glad because it, it tells, gives us a lot of information that's helpful to us as well. But Paul knows he's being really tough on them. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, at the beginning of his letters to them, he says, I, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings but to admonish you. I'm here to warn you and instruct you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, the good news. And that calls to mind Elijah's touching words as Elijah is carried away. My father, my father. And you know, before long, we're going to say farewell to our Elijah aren't we? And we're going to welcome Elisha. And in the meantime, in the meantime, and for all time, my admonition to you this morning, beloved, is to remember Paul's words. When each part is working properly, God makes the body grow in strength and in numbers, and we get built up in love. So ask yourself these questions. Am I growing in Christ? Are you growing in Christ? I hope you are. Some of you might say, well, preacher, tell you the truth, I'm just kind of holding my own. Well, I appreciate your honesty, but that's really not true. We never just hold our own spiritually. Think of it as a greased flagpole. 
I can't think of another way to put it. You're either going up or you're going down, right? You can't just hold your own. And spiritually, you can't just hold your own either. You're either growing or you're going backwards. Are you growing in your love for Christ and his church? I hope that you are. Ask yourself, am I working properly? Am I hitting on all eight cylinders? Am I working properly and building up one another in love? Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us boldness to be honest with ourselves in this moment and later in this day that you would give us the grace to be honest before you about where we fit in. Do we truly love your church? Do we truly want to build it? Do we truly want to be strong? And Father, where we need to repent, we don't need to go back to the Jordan to be baptized, we know, but if we need to repent of these things, then lead us to do that and give us the grace to do it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.